0: Well, once again, happy Mother's Day, everybody. I know I say this each year, but moms, we're so thankful for you. In fact, we wouldn't be here without you. (laughs) Come on, I found it on PastorJokes.com and it was like five stars. They said it was going to kill. It did not kill and I'm going to be giving them some feedback. Anyway, whether you're here in the room or joining us online, so honored to have you along for the ride. And uh, before we jump into the content for today, and for the sake of organizational transparency, I need to let you guys know something. I've recently been affirmed as a prophet in our community. I know, it's a really big deal, right? Here's how it happened. Uh, Just over one week ago, I was setting up our family's trampoline for the season. When I noticed that the protective net that surrounds that thing that you jump on, uh, that net had a human-sized hole that rendered it incapable of performing its intended functions. Um, And after a quick assessment of risk, I opened the Amazon.com app on my phone and ordered a new net with free prime overnight shipping, which I might note is a glorious invention, but that's a story for another day. Now anyway, the new net was waiting for me when I returned from work the following evening, but a light rain was falling, and so I decided to wait for fairer skies before installing it. Well, about 20 minutes later, my wife, Sarah Ann, and I were deep in the throes of making dinner when our two youngest boys, along with the neighbor kid, Oliver, uh, came running in and asked if they could jump on the trampoline while we were getting dinner ready, the aforementioned trampoline with the human-sized hole in the net. And without missing a beat, um, I said, sure, but look at me. Be careful. There's a hole in the net. And I don't want any of you to break an arm. Now, you already know where this story's going, or it wouldn't be a story, right? <laughs> anyway, about three and a half minutes later, Colton, my 10 year old, came running into the kitchen, hyperventilating and holding his arm. And my wife, Sarah Ann, looked at me and said, Well, I guess we'll see if you're a prophet. And after a quick trip to the brand new Spectrum Health Pavilion along with emergent care right in the village of Ada, for some x-rays, my abilities to predict the future were affirmed. Here's a picture of Colton. Yeah, so I I say that just to say, if you have any questions about where your life is going to go from here, Feel free to shoot me an email. I mean, so far, I'm one for one. That's like 100%. So That's pretty good. So anyway, uh, today we get to launch a new series that isn't called Virtual Israel. So some of you are already excited about that, uh, but it's called The Storyteller, and this is actually a 10-week series that will take us right into the middle of summer. And I honestly couldn't be more excited for these talks, and here's why. I'm convinced that the material that we get to unpack together is some of the most helpful I've ever studied when it comes to understanding the mission and the message of Jesus, as well as how he wants his followers to think about God and what it means to live in a relationship with God right here and right now in this life. Super practical stuff. And and so uh, we called this series The Storyteller because whether you realize it or not, Jesus was a master storyteller. Now, Jesus was a master everything. Actually, he was just master, but he was great at telling stories. In fact, the accounts of his life, uh, Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, record many of the short stories that Jesus told. And Bible nerds uh, that study this sort of thing gave these stories a specific name. They call them parables. Parables. Uh, And they basically gave them a separate name to acknowledge that parables, or the stories Jesus told, were a very specific type of story. Uh, Parables leverage real-world circumstances and characters in order to communicate a universal truth. In other words, there's no dragons or wizards or jedis in parables, sorry guys, right? Um, Just regular people with regular struggles and hopes and dreams and observations and problems. Anyway, Jesus regularly leveraged parables in order to help his audience understand something from the perspective of heaven, something he believed could help them behave correctly in this life after they learn to believe correctly about the character of God, who he is and how he works in our midst. Uh, And so, in fact, many of Jesus' parables, including the one that we get to unpack today in sort of session one of the Storyteller, begin with the words, The kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of God, is like... And in the text, kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God are sort of interchangeable ideas. So you'll find parables that start with both of these phrases. Uh, but basically, Jesus is trying to say to his audience, listen, here's a window into how things should look if they were the way God wanted them to be. If, if we were living in a land where God's kingdom had come and his will was done here on earth as it is in heaven. That's the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. And as I mentioned, in this series, we're going to explore 10 of Jesus' most famous parables One at a time. Each week we'll step into the ancient Jewish context in which these stories were first told in order to discover the principle that Jesus was trying to convey. And then we'll ask what it all means for you and me 2,000 years later, halfway around the world. Now, to get us going this week, um, we actually get to begin with one of my favorite parables. Um, And it involves a group of workers in a vineyard. And it's commonly known as, wait for it, the parable of the workers in the vineyard. A clear, if not particularly creative title. Anyway, as Jesus begins the story, he describes a scene that would have been very familiar to his audience. He sets the parable in an average village somewhere in the north of Israel, where most of his disciples were from and where he often taught, likely somewhere near the Sea of Galilee. And as the parable begins, as the story opens, it's early in the morning and the world is waking up to a new day. Just kind of imagine it with me. Dogs are barking, roosters are crowing, cats are meowing, and on the prowl for breakfast. You know, the sun is starting to rise. And and Jesus says, a group of men who were looking for some work for the day had assembled in the square at the center of their town or their village, hoping to connect with someone who needed to hire them and who needed help. So here's how Jesus began the parable. He says, for the kingdom of heaven is like, so there you see it, a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He goes on, he says, he agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. Okay, so it seems like a simple enough scene to imagine. Uh, It's worth noting that a denarius in the first century was an average day's wage. Um, It's what people would earn if they had worked for 12 hours, which was the common work day, again, in, in Jesus' day. So in the parable, the landowner offers the men a fair proposition, and they immediately accept. They walk to the vineyard, and they begin to work. Now, the first people to hear this story would have known that the first few hours of the morning are really the best hours for harvesting grapes. Uh, The morning dew would have settled the dust that often gets kicked up into the air later in the day. And the sun hadn't yet elevated the temperature to an unbearable degree. Uh, and, And so the workers, they would have been fresh from a good night's sleep and they were ready to get down to business. In other words, as Jesus is telling the story, his audience would be thinking, okay, so far, so good. Not even a great story, Jesus, but we're going to keep listening because you're Jesus and we're hoping for a miracle when you're done. So, um, as Jesus continues, he reports that after three hours had gone by, the owner of the vineyard goes back to the center of town to hire a few more guys. Uh, Which, if we're honest, isn't all that strange. I mean, maybe he realized that there was more work to be done than he had originally anticipated. And so Jesus describes it for us this way. He says, uh, about nine in the morning, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He says, he told them, you also go and work in my vineyard and I will pay you. And check this out, not a denarius here, but he says, whatever is right. So they went. It's worth noting that at this point, you know, a quarter of the workday has passed. So it's not surprising that the landowner promises to pay the guys hired at nine whatever is right. That seems fair to us, and it would have been fair to them, too. Uh, Plus, if you're looking for work, something is better than nothing. I mean, I'm sure the kids of the guys looking for work really enjoyed things like eating and living indoors, right? So, you know, Jesus' audience would have understood that. and, And so they get hired, and they go to the vineyard. Now, the the next quarter of the day, between nine and noon, those start to become a little more challenging to work in the vineyard because the sun in Israel's north would have have come above the mountains and warmed the air, so the workers would have needed to take more frequent water breaks. And when the time for lunch finally came, they would have been excited to find some shade under a tree to rest. Well, as Jesus tells the story— As those workers are sitting down for lunch, they would have noticed that the landowner was once again walking in the direction of the town square, the center of town. In fact, Jesus says, uh, the landowner went out again about noon, and then he does it again about three in the afternoon, and, and he does the same thing. In other words, the landowner returned repeatedly to the center of town in order to reinforce his crew. And presumably, each time, he promised to pay the men he hired whatever was fair. Now, now, now suppose that you're one of the guys who's been working since the day began, right? And by, by five in the afternoon, you're 11 hours into your day, your strength would have been totally sapped by the sun. Your clothes would be covered in dust. Your hands would be sore. I mean, you'd be ready to call it a day. Uh, but on this day, around five o'clock, you'd also notice that the landowner has done something strange. Uh, Jesus describes it, this way. He says, about five in the afternoon, he went out and found still others standing around. And he asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Well, they responded, you know, pretty matter of fact, because no one has hired us, they said. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. Now, now it's just interesting to me that these men had been waiting in the town square all day. I suspect that they did not want to re-engage their families without having earned something first. And so they stayed in the center of town all day long, hoping that someone would hire them for something. And fortunately, someone does for one hour, which isn't a lot, but at least it's something. Well, as the story continues, Jesus reports that at 6 in the evening, that's quitting time, the story takes an unexpected turn. It's actually when the story starts to get interesting. And so he describes it this way. Jesus says, when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, sort of the guy in charge of the workers, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning, this is strange, with the last ones hired and going on to the first. So in other words, line up the guys and pay them, Beginning with the guys who just got here. The guys who've barely broken a sweat. And then end with the sweaty, smelly guys who've been here all day. You can just imagine the scene, right? I mean, the guys in the back of the line are watching all the guys in the front. And as they watch, the landowner does something really unexpected and really incredible. Jesus says this way, he says, the workers who were hired about five in the afternoon, who'd only worked like an hour, came and each received a denarius. And at this point, Jesus' audience would have leaned in. It's like, wait, wait, wait a minute. What's a denarius again? Yeah, right, that's like what you get for a 12-hour workday in the first century. So, So as I imagine it, like, smiles would have swept across the faces of the guys who'd been hired in the morning because if the guys who only worked for one hour got a denarius, then the guys who've worked for 12 hours were going to get... Well, actually, they had no idea. But they were confident that it was going to be big, right? Right? I mean, I bet they began to spend the money that they didn't have yet. I bet they began to think things like, you know, I can finally get my wife a few of those designer chickens she's been asking for. (laughs) Right? Don't judge. It was the first century. Chickens were a big deal. Plus, they were free-range and organic, although they didn't even know what that meant. Right? Yeah. Anyway, as Jesus continues his story, he says that not surprisingly, because the one-hour guys got a denarius— He says, when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive, and what's the word? More, of course, right? But each one of them also received a denarius. And it's like like all the lights on the dashboard start flashing, like red alert, we have a problem, right? I mean, so far this story has been rather uneventful, but now, man, the guys who've been there all day probably were talking about forming a labor union. Oh, this guy thinks we're coming back tomorrow. I don't think so, right? They would have been furious at the injustice of what had just transpired. And Jesus actually says as much as he continues. Here's here's how here's how he reports it. He says, when... When they received it, this denarius, they began to grumble against the landowner. Those who were hired last worked only one hour, they said. And you, so apparently they're speaking right at him, right? You have made them equal to us who borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. You can almost hear them, can't you? Like, this isn't right. This isn't fair. Well, in response to the tension, the landowner pulls one of the guys who's worked all day aside, and he says, friend, I am not being unfair to you. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? And I don't think there was a condescending tone in his voice. I mean, he calls him friend. I think it's compassion. Friend, I'm not being unfair to you. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? I mean, didn't I fulfill my promise to you? Didn't I keep my end of the contract? Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? And anyway, isn't that what I'm supposed to pay you? Isn't that kind of the market wage? I mean, did I rip you off? Did I scam you in any way? I I don't think I did. So uh, take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want? with my own money. Or, he says, are you envious, are you jealous? Because I'm generous. And the story ends. And Jesus kind of breaks out of the story and he looks at the audience and kind of gives them the punchline. He says, "Uh, so the last will be first and the first will be last. And then he drops the mic, walks away, right? Uh Uh-huh. And I know what some of you are thinking. Something like, I mean, I know this is Jesus, but, um, man, if I kind of could ask him a question, I'd be like, "Uh, Jesus, this is a really bad story. (laughs) It's weird, and I have no idea what I'm supposed to do with that story. And and so what I want to do the rest of our time is kind of pull it into our world a little bit and tell you what I think think is going on. Uh, First, just an observation. Remember, a parable is intended to help us see something from heaven 's perspective something that will help us understand both God and how best to navigate life in this world so there must be something here for us or jesus wouldn 't have told the story there 's something here for us if we take the time to dig and to look for it and so i 'm um, not surprisingly because it 's kind of my job I did that this week for you right I spent some time digging and thinking and looking and reading and I have a few thoughts that I want to present to you. The first one goes like this. Um, The problem in the story is not that the landowner gave the guys who worked all day too little. I know that's really profound. (laughs) Thank you. Right? Worked all day on that one. Yeah. As we just said, he gave them what he told them he was going to give them. The problem in the story, at least from our perspective, is that he gave the guys who only worked one hour too much. He showed extravagant generosity, but he didn't show extravagant generosity to everyone, or at least not everyone equally. And moreover, he displayed this extravagant generosity that was not laid out equally in a way that everyone could see. Everyone knew what was going on, which honestly is what makes the story awkward. And so what do we do with all of that? So I was preparing this week, and I remembered back many years ago Uh, When a pastor under whom I was working, an incredible communicator named Jeff Mannion, he is famous in the 49301, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Uh, He shared an illustration that as I was studying came back to me, and, and it's an illustration that actually I think of often in times in my life when I notice that things aren't fair he shared an illustration that, that really helped me emotionally enter the tension raised by this parable because I've never really harvested grapes in a vineyard or been paid as a day laborer. So uh, it's an illustration, again, that, that I've referenced countless times in my own spiritual journey, and it went something like this. Uh, he said, imagine you had some young boys who were jumping on a trampoline. You'll never guess why I thought of that this week. Yeah, right? <laughs> And I, okay, so I said, okay, we're on trampoline. And then he said, it's summer, it's hot, and and you decide that you're gonna bless your offspring with some ice cream. Because unlike most children, they like ice cream. That was another joke and it didn't go well. We're gonna move on, yeah. So you call your oldest kid in, your eldest, your firstborn, and you give him a huge scoop of ice cream in a bowl. And he is elated. He says, you're the best dad I ever had. And you kind of point out that you're the only dad he ever had, so you're also the worst dad he ever had. And he kind of gives you an awkward look, which you're very familiar with. And now this is becoming very personal for me. Anyway, <laughs> t- tells you you're weird, goes back out to the trampoline, carrying his ice cream. And uh, you repeat the pattern with your next two eldest kids. And, you know, so they come in and you tell them you love them and they tell you you're the best dad and they walk out with a big scoop of ice cream too. And, and you can just imagine like the, the fourth kid, he's still on the trampoline. He's watching everybody else with ice cream and he knows what's coming, right? And so, you know, you call him in. Uh, so the youngest kind of walks in. He's ready for his treat. And when he arrives, you get out the ice cream scoop and you put one big scoop of ice cream in his bowl and then you put a second scoop of ice cream in his bowl and send him out to his brothers. (laughs) Now, as soon as the other three who are on the trampoline enjoying the Michigan Pothole Ice Cream, right? as soon as they see what's in the youngest kid's bowl, something primal, something (laughs) deep in their bones shifts instantly, doesn't it? You can just feel it Because even though they hadn't expected any ice cream, they immediately were bothered by the fact that they didn't have enough. And then, you know, never forget the the time Jeff looked at an audience and he said, I'm just so glad that this sort of thing disappears once we exit childhood. (laughs) And then he let it hang awkwardly where we all thought, right? Yeah. I mean, just for fun, imagine with me that, you know, you're newly married and you move into your first home and you've been renting and it's like you're throwing money out the window and finally you save the down payment and you find the house and it's it's not like the perfect house, but man, it's the perfect house for you. And you're like, man, there's hardwood floors and there's new appliances. This is just amazing. And and you and and your spouse, man, you sit on the couch that, that first night and you just praise God for his miraculous provision, right? Because you were taught at church to praise God when you're blessed. And so you're like, man, this is this is so, we couldn't be happier. And each morning, you know, you get out of bed and during your quiet time, you're, you kind of make a list of things that you're thankful for. And you're the first one on the list, man, I'm so thankful for this house. God, thank you for the blessing. And you really, feel that way and you really mean it. Until like 6 months after you're in your house and you get invited over to a friend's house who just moved into a new house. They invite you over for dinner and this is a good thing. You're like we like to eat. So yeah, and you know, we enjoy our friends. And as you pull in their their street, you start to realize that these homes, I mean, they're bigger. And and they're newer, right? And they're better, right? I mean, as far as like a place to put your bed, I mean, it's just a, a, a nicer deal. And then you're like, wait a minute. This guy graduated two years after me from high school. What is he doing in a bigger house? I mean, it's all Hypothetical. I'm saying, if your phone's ringing, you can pick it up, right? Yeah, just we're having fun. Yeah, and, and it's like you walk in their entryway and their foyer and it's like a two-story thing with a chandelier and you're just kind of overwhelmed and, and they invite you into the kitchen and you, as you kind of come around the corner and they offer you something to drink, you notice that suspended in the wall in their kitchen, in the wall is an espresso machine and something primal inside of you begins to rise up and and a a switch is flipped and you start to think I did not even know such a thing existed and I did not know it was possible and why is that not in my kitchen wall right and you play it cool because you're a grown-up right then you have dinner and you kind of enjoy it and you make the small talk. But then you get back in your car to go back to your small house, right? And your wife and you are kind of driving and all of a sudden you start to realize, like, I, I feel ripped off. And you're driving up to the same house that you left and you were so thankful for it. And it's like, what in the world happened? And you lay in bed that night and you look up at the ceiling and you just... Kind of pray to God awkwardly, you know, God, I, I thought you were fair and I thought you were good and and maybe you're good, but you're definitely not fair. And I'm not sure how the pastor's ever going to explain this one to me, right? And and so here's the thing, in moments like that, and of course it's not just with possessions, this surfaces in all sorts of different ways, physical things, vacation things, you know, you, you kid that gets into a college that your kid doesn't get into or whatever, It's like in those moments, without realizing it, what's happened is that comparison has stolen your joy. Jealousy has stolen your joy. And it happened deep down, and it happened without you intending it to happen, but it just sort of happened, and it's undeniable. To put it in the illustration, um, your eyes have moved away from what's in your (laughs) bowl— and they've become fixated on what's in someone else's bowl. I mean, if I'm honest, uh, when my focus on what's in my bowl begins to, when my focus is in what's on my bowl, all is well. And when I begin to drift my gaze over to what's in other people's bowls, I really can start to feel like God ripped me off. And I am a professional religious person. Okay, I should be better than that. I should know better than that. But here's the thing: I do know better than that, and it still happens. And I think I know why. It's like, it's, it's something in this world in which we have to navigate. And I think it's why Jesus brings it up in a parable. He's like, this is just kind of how the world is. And, and he wants to help us consider how best to navigate it. And he knows that even 2,000 years ago, you can always find someone with more in their bowl than you have. Always. If it's not material things, it could be all sorts of things. And I'll tell you what, whatever you feel you are lacking in your bowl when you're comparing it to someone else, that is the thing on which you will fixate. Jesus knows what we know, that we live in a world where blessings have not been equally distributed, not even close Moreover, he knows that for reasons we can only begin to understand, or maybe can't begin to understand, God does not seem particularly interested in smoothing out the inequities. And so, for whatever reason, living in a world that isn't fair is part of the human experience. And as I I read the story, uh, the parable of the workers in the vineyard, there's there's a, as Jesus sort of finishes the story, there's a question that hangs in the air, at least for me. And the question goes something like this, Are you willing to trust a God who isn't fair? Because remember, this isn't just about a worker in a vineyard. The the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner and the landowner's God in the story. So are you willing to trust a God who isn't fair? And not even who doesn't seem fair, who just isn't fair for reasons that we don't get to know why. Because the reality is that, that we will come to know God on these terms or we won't come to know God at all. That's just... How it is, and so I just want to encourage you with that super encouraging statement. No, no, just kidding. yeah. But so what I want to do with the rest of our time is get super practical, and I want to suggest a couple things that I have found really do help me um, when I start to recognize that I am my gaze is drifting and that comparison is stealing my joy. Um, Yeah, so anyway, the first one goes like this. Uh, When jealousy arises, when the urge to compare arises, when your gaze wanders, acknowledge that your problem is with God. And this is huge. Because what can happen is if you see someone else that has something you want, a a partner in life that you want, a a sort of kid that you want, a car that you want, an espresso machine in the wall that you want, whatever your thing, right? Um, When jealousy arises, you, you can start to actually hate that person. And in a moment of honesty, you would go, yeah, but they actually didn't choose any of that either. Any more than I chose my not having it, they didn't really choose having it. And so I guess my problem isn't really with him. I guess my problem isn't really with her. I guess my problem is with God. It's like deep down, I feel like he has ripped me off. And so the exercise simply goes like this. Just talk to God and tell him that you feel ripped off. And, and you're like, well, that doesn't seem very nice to do to God, right? I mean, he, he's done a lot of stuff for me and I shouldn't be, and it's like, listen, he's actually waiting for you to acknowledge what you're feeling because he's ready to swoop in and help you and intervene, but he needs to get you to the point where you go, you know what, this is how I'm feeling. And I guarantee you he can take it because I guarantee you he already knows What they're feeling. There's that pesky line that comes up in the accounts of Jesus' life where it says, And Jesus, knowing what was in their heart, and you're like, Oh, that's rough. Yeah, right? So you're not going to tell God anything that He doesn't know. So when jealousy arises, acknowledge that your problem is with God. That's number one. Number two goes like this celebrate what God has placed in your bowl because there's actually a lot in your bowl. In other words, don't obsess about what's in your sister-in-law's bowl or what's in your neighbor's bowl. Think about what's in your bowl. And for most of us, we would just start with health, which is like baseline for human joy, right? If we're, we're, you know, when health struggles happen, joy can be so, so fleeting. But it's like, you know, we woke up today and everything seemed to be working. A little creaky, a little cracking, but generally working, right? healthy. And, and maybe, you know, for us, it's like we have the ability to go out and enjoy a dinner with friends and digest it, right? It's like we have the, our bodies are working in that way. Or maybe like you would say, you know, in my bowl, I guess I, if I think about it, I have the freedom to drive to the lakeshore this summer and to watch a sunset on Lake Michigan. Not everybody has that freedom, It's the freedom of time. It's the freedom of a working vehicle that can get you there and just to drink in the beauty of that scene. And here's the thing, reminding yourself, this is so powerful, reminding yourself of what you have to be thankful for is a surefire way to push away a sense that you have been ripped off. It's a way to take a step away from comparison and towards contentment. Okay, that's number two. So one more, and it goes like this. Um, celebrate the people of whom you're jealous. And I know what you're thinking. I don't want to. <laughs> nope, don't want to, right? But I'm telling you, if you can do this, and like psychologists will tell you, this is amazing. What you got to do is you say things like, man, you look great in that. <laughs> and, and, and congratulations on the new house. And I can't, I can't believe how quickly you got promoted at work again, <laughs> Ask me, you know? And it's like, in other words, the people who drive you crazy, find them and get proactive about celebrating with them. And you say, well, that's insincere. No, it's not. It really isn't. You're being honest. It's really cool that they got what they got. That's all you're saying. And here, but here's the thing. As you do that, as you develop a rhythm of that, you'll experience something that, honestly, a whole bunch of us who've understood this principle have experienced, and it goes like this. Celebration breaks the power of jealousy. And you just got to experience it to see what it is. It's it's just there's something about taking it from your inside world where you're obsessing on it and and just speaking it. It's like it breaks the hold of jealousy on your heart. And so just in summary, uh, three suggestions when you feel uh, comparison stealing your joy. Number one, acknowledge that your problem ultimately is with God. Number two, celebrate what's in your bowl. And three, develop a habit of celebrating the people of whom you're jealous, what's in their bowl. And as you do, my prayer is that you would experience a sense of contentment that often can be all too elusive in our world, a world in which there is undeniable inequity and a world in which, regardless of the specifics of what's in your bowl, even when you don't feel like it, you are desperately loved by the God who created you a God who desires you to thrive in the life that he has given you. I'm convinced that is the central message of the parable of the workers in the vineyard. And now, um, if you're in the room, I'd love to invite you to stand, um, and I'll close our time together in prayer. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for ancient stories that resonate so deeply inside us. I thank you for the wisdom of Jesus who speaks to the human condition. I pray this week we would all take some time to celebrate what's in our bowl, the blessings of this life, and that we would thank you for those blessings. And as we sort of reground ourselves there, I pray that we would sense that jealousy is fleeting and contentment is running at us even in the middle of a world that isn't fair. Uh, We celebrate you as the author of life and the author of each one of our stories. We thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus, and the hope of a life after this life. And for today, we also want to say thank you for all of our mothers and the sacrifices that they made to bring us into this world, to raise us, and to help us take steps after you. And so we thank you, we bless you, we love you. In the matchless name of Jesus, we pray. Everyone said, amen. Amen. We'll see you back here next week, friends. Grace and peace to you.